Amen. You may be seated. Once again, good morning. My name is Jeremy Lundgren. I am an elder and a youth pastor here at Hope Fellowship. And uh, especially if you're visiting with us or new here, we want to welcome you. We're glad to have you here as part of our church. As Jared mentioned, in a couple weeks on, I think it's September 11th, a youth group is going to start up. So if you are going into middle school or in currently are in middle school, in high school, uh, please join us. I'll be sending out more information about that. Uh, but if you want to know more, you can reach out uh, to me about that. Uh, you know, over the summer, we've had a number of students from our youth group uh, go up to camp. They went up to Silver Birch Ranch, a camp up in Wisconsin. Our church is connected with that camp through uh, the Galimas, a family that used to uh, attend uh, church here at Hope Fellowship, and now they live up at the camp where the husband, Casey, works. So we've had uh, students from our church going up there for the past few years. We've, we've even had a number of women go up to their fall women's retreat. And I'm telling you a little bit about this place, Silver Birch Ranch, because I recently accepted a position there at their Bible Institute. So it's called Nicolay Bible Institute. And I will be directing that institute and then be working as a professor teaching theology and Bible classes up there, um, which I'm excited about, looking forward to, do, to doing that. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and to give just a bit of a context for that, my family and I moved here to Lombard seven years ago uh, so I could do my PhD in theology at Wheaton College. And along the way, God's provided many opportunities for me to serve here at Hope Fellowship. I've been able to teach both at Moody Bible Institute and at Wheaton College, uh, but I've been looking for kind of a, a longer term, more stable position. Uh, this, this opened up over the summer, and so I will be entering into that role. Uh, but during this school year, uh, I'll be regularly, regularly traveling up there uh, to the camp, but our family is going to continue living in Lombard. Uh, we'll continue to be a part of Hope Fellowship. Casey's teaching at Villa, in Villa Park. Our kids are going to stay at their schools. Uh, Samuel's a senior at Willowbrook, so he's going to uh, definitely finish up and graduate there uh, one more year to go. And then after he graduates, he's making plans uh, next, to, next summer to head off to college in the fall. And then, God willing, Casey, Evan, Annie, and I will be moving up to Wisconsin full-time uh, next summer. So I'm excited about the position. Uh, the opportunity was really kind of unexpected for me. Um, but yeah, we're excited. It seems like a good fit. Uh, Casey is a little bit concerned that our survival skills aren't quite up to par for living in the middle of the woods in northern Wisconsin. Uh, but there's a YouTube video for whatever we need to figure out. Uh, though there might not be internet access. Um, but we'll work, we'll work that out. Uh, yeah, so her and the younger kids are excited and grateful for this opportunity as well. I've been leading the youth group here. Uh, this will be the beginning of my fifth year. Uh, I, I lo I've loved uh, seeing the students grow and mature. Uh, the irony of the eighth graders saying, I can't believe how wild and squirrely those sixth graders are. We were never like that, and I keep saying to them, no, you were worse. Um, <laughs> no, but just seeing the kids uh, mature and grow, seeing how they develop relationships with each other, uh, seeing the work that God does in their lives is so encouraging. I, I love ser serving alongside the adult leaders and the parents who help make youth group operate. Uh, but as I take on these new responsibilities at Nicolay Bible Institute, I'm going to be ending my responsibilities here at Hope Fellowship over the year. 
I'm, uh, I'm working with Eric and Jared and Aaron on kind of the timing and the details of that. Um, so I'll stop serving at some point this fall semester as youth pastor. Uh, youth group will continue. We're, we're working together on uh, what that's going to look like moving forward. And then at some point over the school year, I'll stop serving as an elder as well. Well, I have a lot of other things I could say about all of that but I'm not actually leaving yet. We're not leaving for another several months. Uh, so those, those other things can wait. Uh, plus I'm supposed to be preaching a sermon right now. Uh, but I at least wanted to share that with you uh, so, so you know uh, kind of what's going on, what's, what's gonna be happening over this coming year with me and my family. Uh, so let me pray right now, and then I will read today's passage. We're going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, uh, as we look into God's Word together, and we'll be looking at the victory of divine birth. So let me pray, and then read from God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Uh, thank you, God, for the love that you show us. Uh, though we are sinners, you've reconciled us to yourself. Uh, you've given us your spirit. You've given us new life. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we open your word, that we would have ears to listen to what you have to say. I pray that you would convict and encourage us. I pray, Lord, that as we think about, uh, think about this victory that we have in Christ, uh, as we consider what it means to overcome the world through faith, uh, that we would just be able to see ourselves as your church and this world as it truly is uh, and behave accordingly. Lord, live uh, in obedience to you, live in love uh, according to who we are in Christ. So would you bless this time? I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Several years ago, I was in Chicago uh, talking with a man who was in seminary training to become a pastor. Uh, he told me a little bit about his life. Uh, tell, he was telling me how he decided to leave his job, uh, go to seminary, and then enter into ministry within his denomination. Uh, he, he was telling me about his desire to enter into pastoral ministry, to serve others, to share with them the hope of Christ. And I enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, he and I had a lot in common. But as we talked, it was interesting, he shared a story with me. And as he shared this story, I realized, uh, or I found, that he was willing to make far too many accommodations. He was willing to make far too many compromises with the world as he sought to bring it the hope of Christ. So he told me about a conversation that he had with one of his former co-workers as he was doing this, as he was quitting his job and going to seminary. And the co-worker was pretty bothered, like, why would you quit your job and go become a pastor? Um, 
maybe on like a professional level, but more than that, he was bothered, he was bothered that this man would want to become a Christian pastor. So he was telling him all the things that he disliked and disagreed with about the beliefs and practices of Christians. But the, the man that I was talking to, the man training to become a pastor, he was explaining to this coworker, he's telling me about it, all the ways that Christianity could be accommodating to him, all the ways that he was willing to accommodate certain ethical demands that the world makes on us, uh, even when those ethical demands run contrary to the love of God, even when those ethical demands run contrary to what God teaches us in his word. And he was willing to make accommodations on some of the central truths of the gospel, that, there's, that, that it's through faith in Christ and Christ alone that we can be reconciled to God. And so he seemed to be willing to give him just about anything that he wanted. But here's the crazy part. That coworker wasn't convinced. That coworker remained disinterested, even hostile. He still didn't like it. He still didn't see why this man would be a Christian or why he would go and become a pastor. Now, the guy I was talking to, I, I could tell that this interaction was very difficult for him. You could tell that it was something uh, deeply significant uh, to his life. But as I thought about that conversation, uh, two questions kind of over the years come, keep coming into my mind. The first question is this, why did that coworker remain so hostile to Christianity, even when this man was willing to make so many accommodations to him. And then second, my second question was, well then why make all those accommodations if the world's just going to remain hostile anyways? Well, as I said earlier, we're looking here in 1 John 5 at the victory of divine birth. And to be more specific, we're looking at the victory that Christians have over the world. And I think this passage offers for us, it presents to us a better way forward when we encounter hostility as Christians in this world. Rather than compromise or accommodation, what I think we'll see here is that Christ has already overcome this world and we participate in that victory through faith. Um, but then uh, that faith looks a certain way. So when we encounter hostility, uh, we don't negotiate with an enemy that's already been defeated. Uh, we don't gloat or become obnoxious. Instead, what we see in this text, what we will see, is that we live in such a way that our lives display the spoils of that victory to the world. And we do that, the way that we do that is by loving each other and walking in humble obedience to the word of God. So here's my main point on the nature of that victory that we have in Christ as it's described in our passage. Those who are born of God overcome the world through faith and with obedient love. So my aim for us this morning as we work through this passage is to think a little bit kind of big picture about the relationship between the church and the world. And then on a more practical level to think about how we as Christians are to live in this world a world that we will overcome, but a world that is hostile to God's children, and at the same time, a world that is the object of God's fatherly love. So here's what we're gonna do. I've taken kind of the basic elements of my main point. Those who are born of God overcome the world through faith and with, obedience, or with obedient love, 
And then I've put together just kind of four simple questions that we're gonna go through and answer uh, and explain each one to kind of guide us through this passage. So I've made a little catechism if you like, uh, but there won't be a quiz at the end unless you want one, then come to me and I can give you a quiz. And I'm sure you'll do very well on it. But here's the, here's the four questions that we're gonna ask. Let me just run through all four of them real quick. Uh, the first question is, what is it that is overcome? The second question, who is it that overcomes? The third question, how is it that they overcome? And the fourth question, what are the spoils of their victory? All four of these questions are gonna have short and perhaps obvious answers that I'll give as we work our way through them, but we want more than just those one word answers, uh, so I will expand on them as we go. So first question, what is it that is overcome? This one's easy, it's because it's repeated three times in verses four and five, the world. The answer is easy, but we need to be clear on what the Apostle John means by this term world and why it needs to be overcome. So in the Gospel of John and here in 1 John, the Apostle has many, very, has many strong things to say about the world. He tells us that the world is loved by God. God is compassionate and merciful towards this world. He tells us that this world is God's creation, uh, that God gives us the goods of this world so that we can live. Uh, we're, we're commanded, we're told to share those goods with others. When we do that, we're displaying God's love. Uh, we see that in 1 John 3, 17. But uh, John also warns us not to love the things of this world. Uh, he describes those as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We see that in 1 John chapter 2. So God loves the world, but the world as it's presented in 1 John and in the Gospel of John, sets itself up in opposition to God and in opposition to God's children. Uh, the opposition began with Christ. God sent his son into this world to display his love. Christ came as a light in the darkness. He came as bread for the hungry. He came as water for the thirsty, but the world rejected him. The world loved, loved the darkness and hated the light. So Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in 1 John 3, 13, the apostle John says, do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you. And so the world, this world that's overcome is a world that's hostile to Christ and his church. Uh, the world to kind of uh, fill the picture out a little bit. Uh, think of the world as whatever it is that pulls you downward away from God. It might be something within your own heart. It might be something out there in the world. It might be spiritual forces. Whatever it is, the world in this context is describing whatever it is that pulls you downward away from God. Uh, John Calvin says that the term world includes whatever is against the Holy Spirit. Uh, he describes it as the corruption of our nature, all lusts, all the crafts of Satan. In short, whatever leads us away from God. And then Martin Luther, he says that the world is comprised of those on earth who teach, believe, and live contrary to Christ. And he goes on to say the world represents not only earthly life with its worldly interests, but also the devil and his whole earthly dominion. 
So the world is hostile to God and his children. It drags us down. But what's interesting to see in this passage is the reason given or the reason implied for why the world needs to be overcome. There's probably a lot of obvious reasons uh, that, that should come to our minds when we think about this. But according to our passage, the world needs to be overcome because otherwise God's commandments are too burdensome for us. We can't love God. We can't love others when we're being defeated by the hatred and lies of this world. Look again at verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And then keep reading on into verse four. And notice the reason why, why God's commandments aren't burdensome, why they aren't fierce or unbearable. Verse four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. When the world overcomes you, when you're held captive by the lusts of the flesh, when you are accused by the enemy, when you're deceived by the allurements of the age, when the flattery of man is more important to you than fellowship with Christ, then yes, God's commandments are a terrible burden. But when you overcome all of that, when you overcome the world, then his commandments are no longer burdensome. That's the logic, that's the flow of the argument here in this passage. So this world, whatever is hostile to God and his children, must be and is being overcome. So what is it that's being overcome? The world, that leads us to our second question, which again has an obvious answer, but one that needs to be further explained. So the second question, who is it that overcomes? And the answer, the children of God. So verse one makes two simple claims. First, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then second, that everyone who loves God the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, in order to understand the connection or see the connection between those two simple claims, we actually need to look back up in chapter four, verse 21, which says this. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that first claim tells us who the brother is. It tells us who our brothers and sisters are. Our brothers and sisters are everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And then the second claim there in verse one clarifies for us that these are the people that you're supposed to love, right? Who is it that I'm supposed to love? My brothers and sisters in Christ. Who are my brothers and sisters in Christ? those who have been born of God. Who's been born of God? Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's kind of the logic that we see there. So if God is your father and you love him, then how could you not love those who are born of him? How could you say that you love God and then turn around and hate his children? So those phrases uh, in this passage, born of God or children of God, are used in verses one and two with an outward focus. So they aren't primarily say, saying something about you as a child of God, they're primarily saying something about the person next to you, the person across from you, that he is a child of God, she is a child of God, that's who you should be loving. Love him, love her. But that kind of just leads us back to the same problem we saw with question one, we can't love our brother or sister when we're being defeated by the world. Sometimes we don't even want to love them. 
So the phrase born of God, it does more work. It tells us who to love, but it also tells us who is able to fulfill that command. It tells us how we are able to overcome the hatred and fear in this world, the hatred and fear in our hearts, and actually show love to one another. So look again, I've already been talking about it, but look again at the beginning of verse four, that little word there, for. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. If someone truly believes that Jesus is the Christ, it's because he's been born of God. You know, there's the, the memorable scene in John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And, and Jesus tells Nicodemus that a person cannot see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So Nicodemus is a bit confused and he asks, well, how can a grown person be born again? That seems kind of weird. So Jesus, is, Jesus explained that the new birth he's talking about isn't another human birth, it's a spiritual birth. Those who are born again are given new life through the Holy Spirit. They're born of God and united to Christ. They're no longer spiritually dead, no longer alienated from God. Instead, they're spiritually alive. They are God's children whom he loves. Now, you and I are quite familiar with the biblical language of being born again, being born of God, being born of the Spirit. But don't let familiarity with that language in Scripture become indifference. Don't forget what a big deal it is, uh, what an astounding claim that's there in that phrase, being born of God or being born of His Spirit. And the reason we can't become indifferent towards that new birth is because we can't overcome this world by means of this world. This fallen world says that victory comes through force and pride and self-assertion. And there's always a temptation to overcome the world on its own terms, uh, right? Being better at being the, the world than the world is. That's hard to say, uh, right? Using its weapons, using the weapons of lofty speech and compulsion, looking for victory through the wisdom of this age instead of the foolishness of the cross. But flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So victory comes to those who are born of God. It comes through his power, not ours. It comes through that new birth. Now, that language of birth, as we've seen in this passage, that idea of being begotten by God, it's used first to identify our brothers and sisters whom we're commanded to love. And second, it's used to identify who is able to fulfill that command, who it is that overcomes the world and displays God's love to others. But there's a third way in which this passage kind of uses that language or addresses the topic of offspring. Uh, it says in verse five that Jesus is the son of God. When we overcome this world, uh, we do so because we're God's children, but we take part in that victory because we take part in Christ. We are God's children through adoption. We are his children through new birth, but Christ is eternally the son of God. There's this powerful scene in John chapter 16. Uh, it's right before Jesus is going to be arrested. He's talking with his disciples about this coming hour, the coming hour of his death. And we know that this is the hour in which victory is going to be won when Christ goes to that cross. But Jesus tells the disciples 
that when that hour comes, they are all going to fail. They're not going to overcome. They're going to be scattered. They're going to abandon him and leave him alone. So Jesus tells them this, but then he gives them some comfort. In John 16, Jesus says to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. On our own, you and I were like the disciples that night, right? Scattered and defeated. But in Christ, we overcome the world. So the Apostle John can say in 1 John that those who are born of God overcome the world, but he can say that because Jesus had already said, I have overcome the world. So when we think big picture about the relationship between the church and the world, this passage rightly leads us to the conclusion that the church is victorious over the world. That should be obvious. But we don't wanna misunderstand how that victory is won or what it means for life in this world today. So those last two questions, questions three and four, will help us better understand uh, that victory, help us better understand the practical implications of that victory. So question three, how is it that they overcome? And the answer there, by faith in Christ. Back in verse four, uh, the second half of the verse says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The, the noun victory in that verse, and then that verb overcome, they actually have the same root in Greek. Uh, there's a shoe company that uses that word also, Nike. Uh, so the, the victory or the overcoming that, that, that's being talked about there comes not through shoes, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our shoes. No, uh, not shoes, it comes through faith. It comes through faith in Christ. But faith might not seem like the obvious weapon of choice for overcoming the world. Right? Think about how the Bible describes faith. Think about what biblical faith involves. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So according to this verse, faith means being sure of something in the future, something that's not yet fully here, something you're still hoping for, and Faith means believing in stuff you can't see. The world and the things of this world are here today. You can see them. You know when they're putting pressure on you. You know when they're making demands on you. How are we supposed to have victory over those things through faith? That's a question that should come to our mind. Really? Of all the possible ways to overcome this world, John is telling us that it happens through faith. Is faith really that powerful? And not only that, the essence of biblical faith uh, also involves this aspect of surrender, right? When you put your faith in God, you're acknowledging your own sinfulness and weakness. You're acknowledging that you've been defeated. You're recognizing your need for God's mercy and forgiveness. So that's not victory through strength, that's victory through weakness. Uh, when we put faith in Christ, we're putting our life, lives into the hands of someone else. That's why it, so often uh, it feels like more of a sure thing not to trust in Christ, but to hold on to the control of our lives ourselves. But first John teaches the opposite. It, it teaches that certainty comes not by holding on to things ourselves, not by seeking to gain victory through our own strength, 
but certainty comes through faith. Faith means that we take God at his word. And that might seem like a small thing, but faith moves mountains. Faith is a shield that protects us from the flaming arrows of the enemy. So faith is the means by which we reach out and grab hold of the promises of God. But technically, uh, faith itself does not give us victory over this world. So verse one says that everyone who believes has been born of God. And verse five says that the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes. But that's right, I cut off both of those sentences in the middle of it, there's still more to say. It's not just the one who believes, but it's the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And the reason it requires faith in that person, not in anyone else, is because it's Christ and Christ alone who can overcome the world. No one else can give us lasting victory. He's the one who sets us free from the chains of sin and death. So when God declares you forgiven and righteous in Christ, when he adopts you as his child, then Satan no longer has any legitimate grounds to accuse or condemn you. So those who are born of God overcome this world through faith in Christ. Now let's look at our final question, question four. What are the spoils of their victory? And the spoils of their victory, the spoils of our victory is obedient love. So we come now to kind of the ethical heart of this passage, verses two and three, with their description of the relationship between love and obedience to God's commands. Before we talk about that relationship though, let me explain a little bit of why I'm uh, calling obedient love the spoils of victory instead of including them up there alongside faith as the means of victory. Uh, and I think it's important to think about because there's a sense in which we could say that love and obedience are the means by which we overcome the world, right? Uh, we receive the victory through faith in Christ, but then we go on to participate in the battle, right? The Christian life uh, is one of obedience, it's one of love, uh, and it's one of ongoing faith, but there's a sense in which obedient love is being used by God, it's, it's a participation in that battle. Uh, so Martin Luther, uh, listen to what he has to say about the church's engagement with the hostile forces of this world. He says, Christians are brought into the conflict to hold the field against God's enemy. They must contend with the enemy's servants in an effort to restrain evil and promote good. Christians must be equipped for the fray. They must know how to meet and successfully resist the enemy, how to carry the field unto victory and hold it. So we're actively involved in this victory over the world. But that involvement comes as a result of faith. It comes as a result of being born of God. So Luther goes on to say that through faith, we become new persons fitted to overcome the world and the devil. So, so we become those new people. We're able to overcome this world through faith in Christ. You know, uh, one commentator talking about the book of 1 John as a whole uh, said that 1 John takes a limited set of words and themes and then kind of combines and recombines them in a dazzlingly endless number of combinations. And as you read 1 John, as you see this happen, you see that John is weaving tighter and tighter circles. He's making his argument more and more complete. 
But then as that circle gets tighter and tighter, you can kind of wonder for a second, like, like where exactly do I jump in in, in this argument? So when you read 1 John, you'll see that if there's no new birth, there's no faith. And if there's no faith, there's no love. And if there's no love, there's no obedience. And to complete the circle, if there's no obedience, there's no new birth. You could go around that circle the other way and it would make sense as well, uh, according to the logic of, of 1 John. So that's the question. How do we get into that circle? Where do we jump in? You know, for God's part, he does the supernatural work through his spirit of giving new life. That's, that's where God uh, starts this, the Christian life. That's where he starts the Christian journey is through the work of the spirit, giving us new life. But for our part, the entry point that God has given us is faith, to believe in the name of Christ so that you may be saved. So as we, we look one more time at that connection between the end of verse three and the beginning of verse four, uh, we, we see that God's commandments are not burdensome. But as you think about your life, as you think about the successes, yes, but also the failures of being loving, of being obedient, when you, when you are told by the word of God that God's commandments are not burdensome, there should be some part of you that says, really? Seriously? Why, why not? Why aren't the, burden, the, the commands of God burdensome? And then again, the reason we're given, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. God's commandments aren't burdensome because this world that wants to drag us down has been overcome. It's been overcome through our faith in Christ. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that's why God's commands aren't burdensome because Christ has given us victory and his spirit has given us new life. So if God is your father, it's because you've been born of him. And it's obvious, right? It makes sense that if God is your father, then you would love him. Uh, the original audience, the original recipients of this letter agreed with the apostle John up to that point, but then he pushes the argument further. He says, okay, it's, another, it's one thing to just say you love God, but if you love God because you've been born of him, then you're also gonna love others who have been born of him. You will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you might say that you love others, but a lot of people say a lot of things. But John says, this is how we know that we actually love others when we love God. But wait, it kind of sounds like John is saying, you can know that you love God when you love your brother and sister in Christ, and you can know that you love your brother and sister in Christ when you love God. That, that's seems like a circular argument. But yeah, it's basically true. If there's no love for God in your life, there's not truly love for others. And if there's no love for others, there's not truly love for God. But we're not stuck in this cycle endlessly because love isn't alone. Uh, when John speaks of love, when he defines what the love of God is, he gives uh, substance to it. He fills out, he defines what love is by saying that it's obedience to the commands of God. So through scripture, through the commands of God, we know what love actually looks like. We can, we can see it. So if God is your heavenly father whom you love, you will obey his word. And it just so happens that in the wisdom of God, the exact things that he commands you to do, 
right? So you show that you love God by obeying his commands. And those exact commands, those things that he's telling you to do, it just so happens that those are the exact ways that you also show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the exact same way that you show love to your neighbor. There's a lot of hostility in this world. But since those who are born of God have overcome the world, we are now free to enjoy the spoils of that victory, to walk in love, to put aside pride and selfish ambition, to speak truthfully to others, to share with those in need, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to not do harm to others. That's what it looks like to conquer the world. As Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. We conquer this world through meekness, through humble obedience to the commands of Scripture. You know, one of the more fascinating things about Christ overcoming this world is that his victory, it includes more than just the defeat of all of his enemies. His victory also includes the salvation of his church. His victory also includes the rescuing of his brothers and sisters. And one of the things that's fascinating about this rescue mission that Christ is on is that when he comes to rescue his brothers and sisters, they aren't yet his brothers and sisters. They are his enemies. Which complicates matters a bit. You're rescuing a hostile enemy so that they can become your brothers and sisters, part of your body. When love reaches out to embrace its enemies, it can't do so without getting poked or pierced. It's like hugging a cactus or cuddling with a porcupine. But actually, it's far worse than that. When we overcome the world through faith, when we enjoy the spoils of that victory, love and obedience, we aren't shooting barbs back at each other. We are embracing each other. We aren't shooting barbs at this world. We're embracing each other as fellow children of God. And at the same time, we're drawing others around us, even those that are hostile towards us, to share with us in the victory of divine birth. Let me pray. Lord, give us courage and hope through your word. Thank you again for that victory, Christ, that you've given us. Uh, help us to walk uh, in that victory, overcoming this world through faith. But Lord, uh, don't let our flesh or our pride or our fear or our doubt define what that victory looks like. Uh, God, let your love define for us what that victory lo looks like. Uh, help us to be students of your word uh, so that we can know it, so we can know you, so that we can know what love looks like and that we can put it into practice, that we can walk down the path in the manner that you've called us to walk Christ. Uh, give us the power through your spirit to do that in this coming week. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.